Hey, good evening. Good to see you. Uh, I want to do something before we jump in. I want to pray together, but here's how I specifically want to pray. Um, we're on Thursday. You've been here since Sunday, most of you. Uh, some of you got in even a little bit earlier than that. And um, today was Super Spirit Day. So I don't know who was dressed like Baby Shark, but I, if you didn't get 10 million Super Spirit points, I don't, I don't know how this game is played. Um, you, you got to see something crazy like the gauntlet tonight. You had, an, you had an abnormal dinner. It could be really, when I say abnormal, you were out on the lawn instead of in the, in the dining area. It can be really easy for tonight to feel like an afterthought. So I just want to pause. I just want to, and then I want to give you an opportunity to pray something, but I, I want to warn you before you do. It's a really courageous, bold prayer. It's not a lot of words, but it's you asking God to do something and committing to do something in return. And so before we jump into the word together, I just want you to, to just even take a moment and still your heart. And then quietly in that moment, I want you to just say this to the Lord. God, you speak, I'll respond. So I just want to give you a few seconds to slow everything down. And if you're courageous enough to say that to the Lord, that if he would speak tonight, that you would willingly respond to him. And Lord, as the students and leaders in this room do this, I do the same. As you speak, I'll respond. Ultimately, any good that happens tonight will not, become, not, will not come because of anything that we can make happen, but actually it'll just be us surrendering to what you're already doing. And so will you help us to do that well? It's in your matchless name I pray. Amen. Uh, when I lived in Dallas, uh, I, I worked at a couple of churches, but the first church that I worked at, um, we were in a season where the church was growing really rapidly, and so we were constantly like just figuring stuff out on the fly. Like at one point we wanted to do like on-site classes, um, but we didn't have any classrooms for the church. And so like we took those uh, like dividing walls that were on rollers that kind of like Velcroed together or whatever. And we would like turn the auditorium of the church into like little classrooms by putting up these false walls. Like we were always doing crazy things like that. And one of the things that we did is we got to a place where we recognized that the Lord was giving us an opportunity to impact uh, um, not just the people who are in our building, but people who are outside of our community. People started asking us, is there ways that we can see services? And so we decided we had to figure out how to build a video room. And so me and my roommate, we had, there was a room up in the balcony and it had, it had a glass window. And so it's like, okay, this is perfect. If somebody's directing a video service, they can see out of that window and, that way, and, they can, and we can have all the gear in there. They can talk loudly so they can talk to people on cameras. And so we just went and built this makeshift video room. The problem was that when that room was built for the church oh so many years ago, whoever built it, built it wrong. And so the glass that was on there was supposed to be a mirror on the outside. So if you were standing outside of the room, it was a mirror and it was supposed to be a window on the inside. And so if, if it had worked that way, then it would have been perfect because that would mean that people from the outside couldn't see what was going on in there. If the director was talking or director was making things happen, they, they could do that in privacy. And then if it was a window for the director, they would be able to see out very well and they could know what was going on in the service as well as what was going on on the screens. 
So we quickly found out that that room was not going to be effective for that because it was a mirror and so all you could do was see yourself from the inside and on the outside everybody could see what you were doing and that was not the intent of the room. So we soon vacated the room and had to go find another video room. But what happened is people started using that room when they didn't want to be in service. And so sometimes that, was, that would be a mom who had a crying baby. And if the mom had a crying baby, she would keep the lights down. And so it wasn't really all that awkward um, because you couldn't really see in if it was dark in there. But sometimes teenagers would go in there. And when teenagers would go in there, they would think, oh, it's a mirror on one side, it's a window on our side. And so they would flip on the light and like you could see from down here while you were preaching, like kids up in the former video room, like play fighting, like wrestling each other, like legit wrestling moves. And they thought nobody could see them, but the preacher could see them. And most of the time their parents could see them. So the number of times in the middle of services that I would see a mom or a dad get up with that look on their face like, oh, I'm going to kill them. And they would go up the stairs, they would go to the room, they would open the door like, people can see you, get out. Like, and so like me as the preacher, people who sat right by it and their parents knew what was going on. And the reality is that a window and a mirror, while they use the same material, they don't do the same thing. That a mirror is meant to help you see back at yourself very clearly. And a window is meant, you to, meant for you to see something that if it wasn't there, you wouldn't have a view of. Now, why am I telling you that? Because when you read the scriptures, particularly when you read biblical narratives, and so when I say narratives, don't hear fairy tale story, but hear that when somebody is telling the, or describing the way that something happened in history, it actually serves both purposes. It is both a window and a mirror. It's a window into the way that God has worked in history at particular times and particular ways. And so even as we've been reading Daniel, we have been seeing a window into God's character and his power and the way that he protects and moves on the behalf of his people. But it's also a mirror about who we are and what we do. And sometimes it's a mirror. And, and you know, a mirror can sometimes be your best friend or a mirror can be your worst enemy. And the reality is that when you read a narrative, it also can be a mirror that shows you um, the intents of your heart, the, the, the ways that you've missed the mark, or the ways that you desperately need the Lord. So even as we read uh, through parts of chapter 4, parts of chapter 5, and most of chapter 6 this evening, uh, I, I want you to have that in your mind, that I'm both seeing a mirror into the way that God works, but I'm also, or a window into how God works, but a mirror also into how humans operate. And so let me, let me give you some examples in that. Uh, and so Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 through 37 would say this. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, and my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my sanity returned to me and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom and even more greatness came to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of the heavens because all his works are true and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. And so here's the window into what God does, that God responds to the prayers of humbled, repentant people. 
And here's the mirror for us that when we sit in a situation similar to Nebuchadnezzar where our pride has been exposed, where our strength has been proved to not be all that strong at all, that we will either ignore what God said, which is what we saw yesterday, or we will turn to him and say, you are the true king and I need your mercy. And so we get an opportunity to see how God works in real time as well as how we are shaped to respond to him. Or another example that I can give you is if you were to read chapter five. And so I wanna walk through chapter five quickly, but I think there's some important things for you to see. And so for instance, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is no longer king. And so a man named Belshazzar, not Belshazzar as Daniel was named, Belshazzar becomes king. And, and, and if you were uh, just today in, during your free time, if you were sitting around reading Babylonian history, you would be like, well, Belshazzar is not the kid of, of Nebuchadnezzar, because I'm sure that's what you do in your free time. You read old history. The story around Belshazzar is that he was actually probably a few kings after Nebuchadnezzar, but his dad was a guy named Nabodinus. And Nabodinus was king, and, and, and Nabodinus was worshiping different Babylonian gods. He was actually worshiping a Babylonian god named Sin. The irony of that is not lost on me. Worshiping Sin should probably end bad for you. And so he was worshiping this Babylonian god named Sin, and Nabodinus, like, told him, Dad, you should probably run away because the people that are in the Babylonian court don't trust you for the way that you're worshiping, and then turned on his dad and sent all the people to where he sent his dad to so his dad would be killed so he could take over. So here's what you need to know about Belshazzar. Belshazzar will do anything in his power to keep his power. And so Belshazzar, when he moves into power, decides to celebrate that he is now the king of Babylon. And part of the celebration that he's having as he brings in all of his court and his queen is that he decides that he's going to take the sacred things that were taken by Nebuchadnezzar from Israel. And he says, I'm going to use that as part of my party here to celebrate my greatness. And he chooses to defile the things of God. Now, what will happen shortly thereafter is in the middle of this party that he would see this vision of a hand that would begin writing on a wall. And so if you've ever heard that popular phrase, the writings on the wall, what that usually means is the conclusion has been made. It's become very clear this is not going to go well for you. And that comes from this story about Belshazzar. When he sees the writing on the wall, it says that he is looking for help from all of his magicians and all of his mediums and all of his wise men and the queen, and he can't figure it out. And if you're reading the ESV, it says that he was shaken. If you're reading it in the CSB, it says that he soiled himself. So to help you understand it, it basically means he sees this vision, doesn't understand what it means, and all the king's magicians and all the king's mediums and all the king's wise men couldn't put Belshazzar back together again. And so then the queen said, well, hey, there was a guy in Nebuchadnezzar's court named da Daniel. You should call him. He is known for interpreting things like this. So Daniel would appear. Verse 24 would say this. Therefore, Daniel's interpreting, he would say, therefore, he sent the hand, and this writing was inscribed. This is the, this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many tekel parson. This is the interpretation of the message. Many means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you've been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Peres means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave an order and they clothed Daniel in purple 
and placed a gold chain around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third under the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. And when you're like, you're like, whoa, that ended abruptly. Now, I, I want to point something out to you. Because if you're looking at what Belshazzar did, it actually seems like it's much more tame than some of the things that Nebuchadnezzar did. He didn't throw anybody in a fiery furnace. He didn't, anybody, he didn't tell anybody not to worship God. He didn't threaten anybody's life. He didn't threaten anybody's way of worship. He literally just took these items that were meant to be dedicated to God and treated them like they were not all that important, like they were party favors for his idolatrous party. And at the end of it, he ends up dead. In fact, it might seem like that's a little bit unfair. Like if you compare his sin to Nebuchadnezzar's sin and our measurements, hey, kill, trying to kill people in your overly hot oven seems like it's a lot worse than just taking some things from God and acting like they're not sacred. But the reality is that in God's eyes, all sin is equal. And the reality is that all sin is against God. And so while there was some sin that was against other people and his current sin didn't have anything to do with anybody else, the fact that he would mock God and what he was doing required God's judgment and then on top of that, how crazy is it that after Daniel gives him this message, first of all, if I'm king of anything and somebody comes and says, God's numbered your days, he's weighed you and found you not good at your job, and he's given your kingdom to somebody else, you ain't making it on the Christmas card list. And yet Belshazzar's response to him was, hey, I'm going to clothe you in purple. I'm gonna give, um, give you valuable riches. I'm gonna promote you. And so he believed Daniel enough to promote him, but didn't believe Daniel enough to repent to the Lord. And so this is a window and a mirror that God will not be mocked. But it's also a mirror that oftentimes, just like we talked about yesterday, there is this reality of our sin that we can take it with less seriousness than we should, and that is a danger to us. And then, as we move into chapter 6, I gave you a tool to see the text well, but I have to confess to you that chapter 6 is a little bit difficult. Because we'll see the working of God, and in fact, if you were to read the book of Daniel uh, in, in one setting, chapter 1 is a really great intro, and then chapters 2 through 7 actually mirror one another. And so chapter two has this, this vision about kingdoms and chapter seven has a similar vision about kingdoms and God's power over those kingdoms. Chapters four and five are really similar. You actually just saw that, that Nebuchadnezzar is caught up in his sin and his pride and he, at first he doesn't repent and he receives the penalty of his sin. And then and you look at chapter five, Belshazzar hears about his sin, doesn't repent and receives the penalty of his sin. They mirror one another. But chapters three and chapter six also seem pretty similar. Chapter three, there's a decree that's made in the land that if you don't worship the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, then you are going to be put in danger. And what we're gonna see in chapter six is there's a decree in the land that affects the way that you pray and worship. And if you don't obey, your life is on the line. But while they are similar in the way that God works to rescue his people, the hard thing about Daniel chapter six is it doesn't show us a really good mirror of us because while Daniel doesn't have sin to talk about it, it doesn't necessarily clearly present our human position. It actually points beyond Daniel and points to somebody who's a better Daniel than even Daniel is. So let's read it together. 
I want to go back up and, and give you a main idea because I didn't do that and I didn't do it on purpose. Because as much as chapter six shows us Daniel's resilient faith, it actually shows us where resilient faith is ultimately built. Resilient faith is built on the death and resurrection of Jesus. So as we dive into chapter six, verse one would say this. Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom and stationed throughout the realm and over them three administrators, including Daniel. These satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. The administrators and satraps therefore kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom, but they could find no charge or corruption for he was trustworthy and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Then these men said, we will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. So the administrators and satraps went together to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. All the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days, anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty, establish the edict and sign the document so that as a law of the Medes and Persians, it is irrevocable and cannot be changed. So King Darius signed the written edict. Now, what you're seeing happen is uh, we've, we've said it over and over again in the life of Daniel, in the life of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, that mo promotions equal mo problems. And so we are now under a new regime. We're under a new set of leaders. All of a sudden, we are no longer under the Babylonian government. We're now under the Persians and the Medes, and Darius has come in, and he's begun to lead. And when Darius comes in, he sees the value in Daniel so much so that very early on, he sets them as, as one of the top three people in his kingdom and loves him so much, has such an extraordinary spirit about him that he moves him. He's planning to move him not just from being one of the three, but being the one, being the guy. And those that are around him are so worried about his power and what that means for them and their place in the world that they devise a plan to try and find charges against him. Now, I mentioned to you that Daniel uh, isn't a great picture of us. One, because that doesn't feel near to our situation. Uh, I don't know any of us that are third in anybody's realm getting ready to get promoted to number one, but the reality is that we also probably don't have that story of being so trustworthy and so true that there could be no charges brought against us. However, as true as that was for Daniel, it's actually even more true when you look at the picture of the life of Jesus. Um, Jesus was such an interesting character because uh, it, it, I, I can't imagine what it would have been like to be in, in, in Pilate's house that day when Jesus had been arrested and brought in for charges. The interesting thing about the way that Jesus was even arrested was that Jesus was arrested, caught praying in a garden. Don't forget that. That'll be important in a few minutes. Um, and they bring him in and they start doing trials at night, which is actually illegal according to the, the Israelite law. They bring him in and then they bring him before Pilate. And when they bring him before Pilate, the accusation against Jesus is that Jesus has been trying to lead this political insurrection against Rome. And so therefore you should do something about him. 
The hard thing is that if you read about the life of Jesus, there's not a lot that you can be mad about Jesus for. I just, I don't know any country in the world where they, where they would say, um, we're going to have to throw you in jail because somebody was blind and after you encountered them, they weren't blind anymore. I, I don't know a lot of courts of law. Like, I can't imagine the Supreme Court sitting there and saying, we're going to have to deliberate this a little bit. But what we heard is that there was somebody that their hand was withered and then you said to them, stretch out their hand. And all of a sudden, they were able to stretch out their hand in a way that they couldn't do before. We're going to have to deliberate, deliberate and see if that violates the Constitution. Like, I just don't think that there's a lot of times, I, I watch, we love justice in our country. And so that's why you've got law and order, law and order SVU, law and order criminal intent, law and order just in case you stole your mama's purse. Like, there's all types of law and orders. And I've never seen on law and order the episode where Stabler is sitting there saying, okay, how can we catch this guy? Because somebody was dead at a funeral and he walked into the funeral and said, hey, you don't get to be dead anymore. And they got up. And so when you look at the life of Jesus, like what charges can be brought against Jesus? So much so that Pilate's like, hey guys, I, I don't know what to do with this guy because he's not done anything to violate the law. Like they even one time tried to catch him not paying taxes. He found a fish with money in its mouth and paid taxes. Like you just can't bring anything as a charge against Jesus. And so while that's true about Daniel, it's even more true about Jesus. So these Men devise a plan. If we can't catch him for being a criminal lawbreaker, we're going to catch him in his holiness and his honor to his God. We're going to catch him in doing something by making up a law to get him caught up. Chapter, verse 10 would say this. When Daniel learned that the document has been, had been signed, he went into his house the windows in its upstairs room opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel petitioning and imploring his God. So they approached the king and asked about his edict. Didn't you sign an edict that for 30 days, any person who petitions any God or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, as the law of the Medes and Persians, the order stands and is irrevocable. Then they replied to the king, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles, has ignored you, the king, and the edict you signed, for he prays three times a day. As soon as the king heard this, he was very displeased. He set his mind on rescuing Daniel and made every effort until sundown to deliver him. Then these men went together to the king and said to him, you know, your majesty, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no edict or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. And so Daniel hears about this law. Daniel knows what is going to cost him. And then Daniel goes up into his room and begins to pray three times a day. And the author makes sure that you know just like he did before. Now, I mentioned that when you read a narrative that it is both a, a window into how God operates and it's a mirror into how we often operate. And this may not be a, a mirror in terms of what we do, but it may be a mirror to what we should become. And I just want to tell you that you will never win public battles without private devotion. Uh, I'll say it this way. I think oftentimes we think when that moment comes, I'm, I was in high school in 1999. 
And so if you don't know what that means, in 1999, uh, in April of 1999, two young men walked into a school in Colorado and began to shoot students, and it became very notable because some of those students were Christians. In, in particular, there's a young lady named Rachel Scott, and when they asked her if she loved Jesus, she shed, said yes, and then they shot her. And I can remember kids in youth groups like mine saying all the time, well, if that happened to me, I would say yes. And yet they were the same kids that were afraid to quietly pray over their meal or be faithful to read their Bible. I just want to tell you that without private devotion, you don't win public battles. And so we see Daniel privately devoted to the Lord, knowing what it would cost him. As true as that is for Daniel, it's even more true for Jesus because uh, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, it's not like Jesus was taken off guard. In fact, he says to Judas, hey, you need to go out and do what you plan to do. And then he leads his guys out into a public garden where he can be found. He, he knows what's coming because he's in the garden praying, saying, God, if there's another way we can do this, if there's a way that this cup can pass from me, let it pass from me. But if it's your will, I'll do it. He knows what's coming. And when Judas shows up, he's not hiding out He's not running away. He's there for that. He's living as he would have lived even before he knew the betrayal was coming. And so while these people think that they're devising a plan outside of the, the, the will of God, the power of God, they're finally going to get this guy. God's using this plan all along to accomplish his purposes in the life of Daniel and also in the life of Jesus. And then verse 16 will tell us this. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God whom you continually serve rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing in regard to Daniel could be changed. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and he could not sleep. I, I want you to note something that's interesting. In every other chapter that Daniel has been in, Daniel has done some sp significant speaking. He's interpreted dreams. He's asked to be treated differently in the way that he eats. He's given reasons why that there should be repentance or a way to operate differently. But it's interesting to me that in this chapter, we only hear about what Daniel does, but Daniel never actually speaks. Like Daniel's third, like one of the top three people in the kingdom under the king. Daniel's got some power. Like Daniel could have some conversations here that could make some people back up because Daniel has some authority. And, and like, I just think it's our human nature that when we have authority and power and people try and wrong us, that we let them know how they've done wrong and we're gonna get back at them. If you don't believe that to be true, just listen to a Taylor Swift album. And yet, with as much power as Daniel has, and as much as Daniel's been known to speak powerfully in the name of God, the word of God, when it comes to this situation, instead of Daniel speaking, Daniel is absolutely silent, just submitted to the plan that's being perpetrated against him. It's interesting to me because in a similar way, like Jesus has power. Like, Jesus, like, I just don't think we give Jesus enough credit for how cool Jesus is. Like, 
there are a lot of people in the scriptures who did things under the power of God, under the name of God, but there was nobody like Jesus. Like there's a story in the life of Jesus uh, about his friend named Lazarus who gets sick. And when Lazarus gets sick, everybody's like, hey, you love him, you should go help him. And he's like, no, this is the plan of God, he's sleeping. And the disciples are like, oh man, he's resting, that's good. And he's like, no, y'all, he's dead. And so Jesus gets there. He's been dead for four days. Both of Lazarus' sisters are, are seemingly inconsolable because their brother's dead. One sister, Martha, said, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. That's not like this comforting, like no worship song starts that way. Jesus, if you had done something different, my life would be better. He ends up going to the tomb. They open the tomb and Jesus doesn't walk in and like unwrap his dude and like start doing chest compressions. Like he stands at the front of the tube and he says, Lazarus, come forth. Some of you, your counselors have been like, hey, wake up and get up, it's breakfast, and you move less than Lazarus did. <laughs> and so Jesus is talking to a guy that's not like, like Princess Bride, not like sort of dead, not like kind of dead, like he's dead dead. And he says, Lazarus come forth, and Lazarus gets up, and they got to unwrap the dude from his grave clothes. Like, Jesus is bad. Like, when they try to arrest Jesus, and he says, who do you seek? And they say, we come for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. When he says, I am he, it's so powerful, the dudes fall back on the ground. Like, Jesus has power in his words. And yet, when he's standing in front of Pilate, and he could use that power to defend himself, he won't speak at all because he surrendered to what God has invited him into. And then I don't want you to miss the irony of the despair that, that Darius is feeling because of his affection towards, towards Daniel, that somebody whom he's loved has been consigned to certain death, sealed with a stone in front of what will be not just the place of his death, but his tomb. And then the next morning, they decide to go back and the stone gets rolled away. And, and this is where good preachers just preach. This is the time when you just see the analogy of what should have been certain death, certain despair, certain brokenness, certain frustration, that it ended up this way, that it ended, becomes an opportunity for God to be, be glorified in the way that he works in the world. Because this is what the disciples felt when on that Friday Jesus died and they had to deal with the silent Saturday where they didn't know how it was gonna turn out. And then the women get up in the morning to run to the tomb and they show up at the tomb and all of a sudden the stone is rolled away. And instead of finding death where there should have been certain death, they find grave clothes and Jesus was nice enough to fold his stuff before he gets out. I don't know that this is an analogy, but your mama would tell you that means you should make your bed. And so Jesus comes out of the, is out in the tomb acting like a gardener and they're like, the stone has been rolled away. Why are you looking for somebody who's living amongst the dead? And when Darius runs to the tomb and he calls out, Daniel, did your God save you? It's this belief that maybe God has the power to rescue those who should be destroyed. And this is a picture that we see in Daniel that's made even more perfect in Jesus. And then here, we see Daniel speak for the first time. Verse 19, I'll start a little farther back, says, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he reached the den, he cried out in anguish to Daniel. Daniel, servant of the living God, the king said, 
Has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke with the king. May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they haven't harmed me, for I was found innocent before him. And also before you, your majesty, I have not done harm. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to take Daniel out of the den. When Daniel was brought up from the den, he was found to be unharmed, for he trusted in his God. The king then gave the command, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the lion's den, they and their children and their wives. They had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all of their bones. That is not how Hallmark movies usually end. Then King Darius wrote to those of every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth, may your prosperity abound. I issue a decree that in all my royal dominion, people must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he endures forever, and his kingdom will never be destroyed, and his dominion has no end. He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in heavens and on earth, for he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And as cool as the Daniel story is, in fact, this is the most famous story in all of Daniel. Here's what the Daniel story is not. Daniel can't save himself. It's God who rescues him. Daniel also can't save anybody else. It's... It's also difficult to see and maybe even made you curl back a little bit, which is why I made the joke that those that came against Daniel were thrown into his place and, and received the wrath for their evil upon themselves. And this is why Daniel is not a perfect mirror, but it is a beautiful window into what God does even in an even greater way in Jesus. Because when Jesus takes the wrath, he doesn't, come out unharmed. He comes out wounded in his side, wounded his hands and his feet, carrying the penalty that sin requires in such a way that those that come after him, that though they sin, that he's covered the penalty for them and they get to walk in his grace if they trust him. Uh, I, I love the way that King Darius responds that, that this is the living God, that he endures forever, that he's able to rescue and redeem, that he's able to perform signs and wonders, that this is the God that uh, is, is uh, rescued Daniel from the power of lions. That after seeing what God does in the life of Daniel to rescue and redeem him, that it be, brings worship out of the, this guy that watches it and begins to believe it also. And this is the ultimate beauty of what Jesus does for us, that when we get to see what he's done by surrendering to the plan of God and resurrecting from the dead, that it stirs something in us of appreciation and worship towards the God whom he entrusted himself to. So again, as beautiful as the Daniel story is, it's even found more beautifully in Jesus. So what do we do with that? Resilient faith is built on the death and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, without that, none of the other things that we've talked about this week actually make any sense. Without the death and the resurrection of Jesus being present in your life, 
we, we, it's a fool's errand for us to have a faith that will stand in the face of a hostile world. But I just don't want us to miss that central to the story of Daniel and Jesus and his death and his resurrection is this ability to surrender. And so what I would share with you is simply this. The road to deliverance begins with surrender. Let me apologize to you. Last night, uh, I spent a lot of time talking about sin, and that was intentional. I'm not, I'm not apologizing for that. But I kind of left you with this cliffhanger of, hey, well, you got sin in your life. Good night. Go play Kajabi. And what I didn't say is that if there's a reality of sin that both is outside of you but also emanating from inside of you, how do you get delivered from that? Do you fight harder? Do you do better? Do you, put more, do you put more guards in your life to keep you from falling in those places? And ultimately what that does is it makes you feel exhausted because you're trying really hard to make yourself good enough and righteous enough and you'll find out very quickly that you'll fail. Maybe you might have a few weeks as, at a good run, but all of a sudden you realize very quickly that there's no way that you can make yourself right. The way to that type of deliverance is not that you try and rescue yourself, but it's that you surrender to what God is doing. And what God is doing is he's inviting you to know the goodness of Jesus that has been accomplished on the cross. That Jesus, though he lived perfectly, found innocent with no charges that could be brought against him, was willing to lay down his life only by the power of God to be able to rise up again and say, in the same way that I've defeated sin and death, you don't have to fight that fight anymore. I've won the fight for you. Trust me. And maybe some of you sit here and say, man, that sounds good for the church kid who maybe told the little white lie to their mom before they came to camp. But what about me whose life is riddled with sin? We've talked a lot about the Apostle Paul this week, and I'm going to point to him again. He's, and I mentioned yesterday that he writes two letters to a young man named Timothy. In the first one, he's, he's encouraging Timothy, talking to Timothy, and then, he, and then he begins to talk about himself for just a little bit as a, as a sign of encouragement. Here's what he says starting in verse 12. I, gave th I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. That, that, that sounds like, oh yeah, I mean, you're the Apostle Paul. You wrote most of the New Testament. Yeah, of course the Lord finds you faithful. Of course he thinks you're worthy and worth it. And he says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. A blasphemer is somebody that takes something holy and treats it like it's not all that valuable. A good definition of a blasphemer may be Belshazzar, somebody who would take the holy thing of God and treat it like it's common. Uh, when I talk to my church about this, I'm like, I'm like, imagine him using the holy things of God like it was a red solo cup. A blasphemer doesn't appreciate the holiness of God. He tramples on it. And Paul would say, I was like that. A persecutor, that I, that I worked hard to harm people who love Jesus. Literally, there's a, a story about Paul where he's got warrants where he could arrest and put to death people who followed Jesus. 
And then he says that I was an, uh, an arrogant man. Another version would say that I was an insolent opponent, that I was trying to fight God, and even though I couldn't win, I wouldn't submit to him. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed, along with the faith and love that are in, in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Um, if you ever see that in your Bible, that means underline this, circle it, put stars around it, f find a highlighter, make sure that you put your heart anchored in this. Christ Jesus came in the world to save not good kids who always get it right, not perfect people who really just kind of need to clean up a, a little habit in their life, not people who struggle a little bit, but overall they're pretty awesome, that he came to save sinners. And he says, and just in case you were wondering, I was the worst of them but I receive mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who believe in him for eternal life. And I just, I just want you to hear, regardless of what your record of sin is, regardless of how many times you've done it, church kid, regardless of how many times you've done it, said to God, I'm not going to do it anymore, and then started doing it again unchurched kid, regardless of the numbers of times that you said, that church stuff is stupid, you're an idiot for believing in Jesus, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure that I make your life miserable because you love him. That Paul would say that you're the very reason that Jesus came. That you're the very reason that Jesus endured suffering. That you're the very reason that Jesus would surrender the plan of God so that you would know the perfect patience and love of God and know that the mercy of God is available to you even if you think you're the worst of the worst. That you might know God's goodness and believe in him for eternal life. And then he ends by saying now to the king immortal, or king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And it almost feels like when Paul thinks about his own story, he can't help but worship God for what he's done to rescue him from who he was and the sin that he was trapped in. And I just have to believe that some of us in this room, that tonight's an opportunity for us to worship the Lord that way. That for some of us in this room, as good as Daniel was, he couldn't save himself. It's God that needed to save him. And we, it's not a mirror for us. We don't look like Daniel. We look like something far less. And we need somebody to rescue and redeem us just like he did. That we need somebody to rescue and redeem us from not just the, the brokenness and hostility of the world around us, but the sin that has been ravaging in us. And that person who is going to do that is Jesus if we trust him. If we trust the death that he died and the resurrection in which he rose, that if we trust that he did that to prove the love of God and the perfect patience of God, that we might have a relationship with him. So students, I just want to invite you to live out what you prayed earlier tonight. That if God would speak to you, that you would respond. I think there are two groups tonight. I think there may be one group of students who's, who maybe has never trusted Jesus. And, and I say that, when I say that, maybe you've been around the church, maybe you've um, sang the songs and been in the VBSs and come to camp, but you've never said, 
that I am surrendering myself to Jesus and his plan for what he has for me. My hope is in him. I trust him to forgive my sins. I trust him to give me the strength to follow after him for the rest of my life. I want to trust him that way. So tonight I'm going to ask you to do something super courageous. It can be really easy with people sitting around you. It can be really, really easy maybe with people sitting around you that you don't know and you don't want them to know your business or people sitting around you that you do know but you, you think that they don't know that you struggled and you don't want them to find out tonight. It can be really easy to not respond to the Lord. But I just want to tell you that there is nothing more important in the world than being in a right relationship with God and Jesus has made that available to you. And all you have to do is receive it. But because we want to serve you and pray for you well, I'm going to ask you to do something super bold. If you're here and you want to respond to the message of Jesus dying for your sin and raising in victory and inviting you in to the relationship with God, for the rest of your life and for the rest of eternity. If that's you and you're doing it for the first time, I'd love to know who I'm praying for as well as your leaders would love to pray for you. Would you do me a favor? Would you stand to your feet so we can know who we're praying for? Awesome. Yeah. Stay standing, stay standing, stay standing. We're gonna pray in just a second. Stay standing. But here's what I wanna say. There's, I'm not, I don't wanna embarrass you, but I, I may. There's a young lady in the balcony and you're the first person I saw. And I just, I just wanna encourage you. You didn't wait for anybody else. You just heard Jesus calling and you just jumped up to respond to him. I don't know if you think of yourself as a leader, but I'll tell you, sometimes other people need some, see, to see somebody else to do it, to be brave enough to do it. And I just think you broke a threshold when you stood up that gave other people the boldness to do the same. So thank you. But I also want to say that maybe you're here and you needed to see somebody else do it. And you didn't want to be the first one because you were afraid and it felt awkward. Like, I just, I just want you to know that there's space for you. I'll wait a moment for you. If, if maybe you're like, man, I feel this pounding in my chest and I should respond, but I didn't respond. I've never accepted Jesus, but I feel like this was for me that God was speaking. And I said that if he speaks, I'll respond. Here's your opportunity to live that out. So if that's you and you didn't respond, but you felt like you should have, I would love to be able to know who I'm praying for also. Would you stand so I can pray for you? Thank you. Yeah. Let me pray. Jesus, what an amazing moment. These young men and young women walked in here, maybe familiar with the idea of you, but not having been fully introduced to you. And tonight they got to hear that you lived a perfect life in which you did not deserve the punishment that you received for sin. 
And yet now they can openly admit that they lived a life in which they do deserve that type of punishment for sin, but you have paid it all. You've absorbed it. You've, you've taken that penalty instead of letting them carry it. And now they're saying that by faith that they want to trust you, that they want to anchor their hope in you, that when they think about where they're going to spend the rest of eternity, that they want to tie that hope to you and you alone. So Jesus, thank you that they've heard the word in such a way tonight that they responded to you and said, yes, Jesus, you can have all of me. Just as you surrendered, I surrender to you. Thank you for that grace. It's in your name we pray, amen. You guys can be seated. I think there's a second group. And the second group, maybe you've been around this and maybe you've prayed the prayer before, um, but maybe it wasn't true surrender. Maybe it was... Maybe it was the peer pressure of the moment. Everybody's doing it, so I should just go along with it. But when, it, but when you think about that you've surrendered your life to Jesus, that he gets to be Lord of your life, that he gets to be Lord in such a way that even if the world around you disagrees with what Jesus would call you to do, that you would say, no, I want to please him more than anything else because resilient faith uh, wants to please God above all other opinions. And maybe if, if I were to ask that of you, maybe you could say, yeah, I've, I've prayed prayers in the past or I've done things like that in the past, but I've not really surrendered or I'm just now realizing what surrender might look like and I just, I just wanna re-up. I just wanna recommit. I just wanna revalidate that yes, Jesus, I, I, I didn't fully understand that, but now that I know, I want to be in. If that's you and you just want to recommit your heart, your life, resurrender who you are fully to Jesus, and you just want to acknowledge that publicly, I want to invite you to stand so I can pray for you as well. And just like the other group, even if no one else around you, thank you ladies, does that. I want to invite you to be bold and to stand. Again, this helps your, your counselors, your leaders. See and know. And so, Jesus, I thank you. Thank you. The prophet Isaiah would say that God, you promise us this that you don't remember our sins and then you wipe away our transgressions. And so for these young men and these young women, the, the scheme of the enemy may be to make them feel so shameful and so guilty that they feel silly for standing up and saying, God, I'm going to recommit. And he may be whispering in their ear, you're just going to fail again. But Lord, would you remind them that this is the very reason why you came, to rescue them from the grip of sin, to rescue them from the feeling of failing over and over again because sin has become a master over them and you are setting them free but that freedom starts with this type of surrender. Would you let them walk out of this place, both in their head and their hearts, convinced, convicted of what you've done on their behalf, and would you give them, like Darius, the ability to praise you in a way that, will, that, that, that recognizes that you're the one that rescues and redeems, that you're the one that has the power to save, and that they have depended their 
hope and their future on you. And so thank you for that, Jesus. It's in your matchless name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now here's how I want to end. And then I'm going to get out of your way. I, 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 there's a story in the book of Luke. Luke is one of the four stories about the life and the work of Jesus. And, and he tells a series of stories because Jesus has this bad habit of hanging out with sinners. If you read the book of Luke, uh, one author says, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. Like Jesus eats and hangs out with people a lot in the book of Luke. And so he's eating with these sinners, and these people are like, man, if he was as righteous as he said he was, he would not spend time with people like this. And so Jesus tells three stories to help embody, well, this is why I do this. The first story he tells is about a guy who has a sheep that loses his sheep, one of his sheep. He has a hundred of them. He loses one of them, goes after the one. And when he finds it, he like calls a bunch of people and says, hey, we should have a party. The second story is a woman who loses a coin. She searches the house, turns the house upside down, finds the coin, and when she realizes that she found the coin, she calls all of her neighbors and has her neighbors come over to celebrate finding the coin. The last story he tells is about a man who has two sons, and one of the sons says, basically, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my stuff. I'm out of here. Goes and spends all of his stuff, breaks the traditions, decides I'm going to go home and just be a servant to my dad. On the way home, his dad sees him and says, my son who's dead is now is alive, runs and wraps his arms around the son and says, hey, guys, let's throw a party because my son who was dead is back. He's alive. I just think the response of heaven when people say, I'm surrendering to Jesus and I'm letting him give me life and life eternal. I don't think heaven was like, okay, that was cute. I think heaven celebrates. Not only does heaven celebrate, in our text, Darius celebrated. Darius was like, God saved you. And then bust out in poetry. You bust out in poetry when your English teacher makes you do it, when it's Mother's Day and you gotta write something to your mama, or when you're trying to get the affections of your camp crush. Like poetry means you're feeling something. And Darius jumps up and says, God has saved you, and then busts out that this is the living God, that this is not some dead idol who can't make change in the world, but this is the God who lives and rescues and redeems and saves. And I just feel like tonight with the number of you that stood up either for the first time or in a recommitment, that there's this opportunity to say that this is the God who is a living hope, who's crossed the chasm of our sin and brought us to himself and made us alive when we should have been dead in our sin. And so students, if that's true for you, for the first time, or you've been reminded of that tonight, I just want to invite you to stand to your feet and sing, not just because it's the song that you're being led in, but sing because it's the testimony of the work of God. It's the window into God working in real time in you. That God who has given us a living hope has made you his. Will you stand to your feet? Will you worship with me?